Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. If you want to open up to the book of Lamentations. So we've been going through this series of Lamentations, uh, talking about how we deal with our emotions. And if you remember, we've talked a little bit about the backstory of this book. Lamentations is a book full of poems and songs with some of those gut-wrenching emotions that we find. And Lamentations was written um, as, as a prayer book to follow along the book of Jeremiah. And what's going on in history at this point when it's written, God's people have just been uh, devastated. They've, uh, the, the people of God have lost everything. The Babylonians, this foreign power, has come in and destroyed their, their country, their land, destroyed their homes, taken a bunch of them into exile. And now they're kind of like left with like what... What do you do next? What do you do when everything you have, everything that you've hoped for, everything that you've worked for gets destroyed? And there's this, this book of lamentations that comes. It's their lament. It's them crying out. And as they uh, have had all this happen to them, they, they had these warnings. They, they knew the way that they were acting. It was like their culture was, it was like rotting from the inside out. They had become a corrupt people. And they, they had these warnings that this wasn't going to end well. And now it hadn't ended well, and they've lost everything. And they start to say some of these words, some of these phrases that they say. That in chapter 1, it says, The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look upon my suffering. They said, See, O Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. The powerful words about what they're feeling inside. And then in chapter 3, they go off on this rant, and just think of some of the, the language that they use. They say, I am the man who see, has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath, he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old, and he has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out, or cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has barred my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked, like a bear lying and waiting, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust 
I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone. All that I have hoped for from the Lord. It's a pretty powerful language. It's a pretty heavy language. Some of you have gone through experiences where, like, you resonate with this. Like, you, you read these things and, you, like, to walk in darkness, to experience bitterness and hardship, weighed down with chains, to feel like you've been mangled, that you've been the target of his arrows. You feel like you've had your heart pierced or that you've become the laughing stock of people. Broken teeth, trampled. These are all powerful, heavy statements. And what we find is that these people who had lost everything had, had finally come to this understanding that the calamity that they have suffered, uh, they were responsible for from a lot of their own decisions. And what's interesting is as you read through the Old Testament, you have kind of this proverbial wisdom that says, if you just do this, this, and this, everything's going to work out. But then you also have kind of this unconventional wisdom that we start to see in places like the book of Job, where it's like, I've done everything I was supposed to do. I've done everything God asked me to do, and my life is still full of calamity and destruction. And they start to just be in touch with this kind of deep human emotion that I think all of us feel. What have I done to deserve this? In Lamentations, they're, they're crying out and they're venting to God. Some of them have done this and it's caused it. Some of them have not. But they all feel this uh, lousy about themselves. This is almost like a depression. It's a heavy language. And I would say a lot of them, what they're experiencing, and I think that we experience this in many different ways, is guilt. Like, what have I done to deserve this? Sometimes we feel that. We know what we've done. Sometimes we don't. But we have this heavy sense of, like, really kind of low esteem about ourselves. We, we experience guilt where we feel uh, like we've, we've caused these things to happen. And that guilt can be heavy. And it's this emotion that we feel um, that is kind of, like, locked deep inside of us. And I would say that this emotion uh, of guilt... Um, there, there's kind of two ways that it plays out. And I think that there's, there's two types of guilt that we have in our life when we consider the world around us. One type of guilt is this conviction. And what I would say is this is like a healthy kind of guilt. This, is a, this grounds us in reality and truth. When we have this conviction in our life, it helps us shape and change behaviors. When we have uh, conviction, it's almost like this voice of truth that speaks into our life, that leads us to repentance and forgiveness and wholeness and change of behavior. And that's a good kind of guilt. And it's healthy to process events that are happening in our life when we're grounded in truth. We're grounded in reality. But there's another kind of guilt that has to deal with this idea of shame. And shame is a lie. And shame buries us in life's circumstances. And shame gets us to believe all sorts of things about ourself that isn't true. And we experience the shame, it's almost like it whispers false things. It's a secret conspirator who taunts us and condemns us and torments us. And I would say when it comes to guilt, when it comes to conviction, it's this work of God's spirit in our life that grounds us in truth and helps us to have a good perspective on events that are happening. 
But shame is almost this sense of guilt that the evil one places inside of us that deceives us and gets us to believe all sorts of lies about ourselves. And what we find in Lamentations is it seems like there's a lot of just kind of shame of how things have played out. And as they cry out to God, they're just ashamed of their actions. And what is shame? How would you describe shame? Last week we heard um, from Christy Fay for Mother's Day. She did an excellent job uh, uh, preaching. And uh, her, her husband, Michael, um, leads another church plant down in Arcadia. And I'm really good friends with him, have been good friends with him most of my life. Uh, and we were kind of, we, we gathered together every other week to kind of like plan out sermons. And we got to this topic of shame. And he brought up this story about how he experienced shame in his own life. And the story goes back to high school. And uh, we were in high school together. And between our junior and senior year, Michael Fay grew seven inches in the summertime. You guys have seen that. You know, we, he's what we would call like a late bloomer. That's okay. And grew seven inches. And he went from being kind of this like scrawny, kind of nerdy kid in high school to all of a sudden starting on the basketball team, dating the coolest girl in school. And, and I was already like in the cool group. So, uh, <laughs> but he wanted to be in that group too. And, uh, and he had been gaining kind of like, you like see the rise of popularity, the rise of momentum with this kid. Um, and was kind of like in our group now. And that was fun. Um, but we had known Michael Fay, you know, pre-puberty Michael Fay. And, and that was still Michael Fay to us. And I was in this group of, uh, of cool kids. And our, our school had this huge event called a lip sync battle once a year. And in this lip sync battle, uh, you, you would put on this performance and do a, a lip sync of like a, a really cool band or like a show. And it was like uh, just this real popular event, like hundreds of people would come, like a thousand people would come. And I was in the cool group that always put on the best lip sync show, believe it or not. Um, and, uh, and Michael Fay really wanted to be in our lip sync that year. And we were trying to decide, because he was in a different group that we would battle against that wasn't as cool as us. But he was like in the cool group now, so we're like, okay. And one of the things that, we're in high school, we're mean. People are mean. Just teenage years, I don't know how any of us survive it. Uh, we decided that we were going to humble Michael Fay. And we were going to play this prank on him during our lip sync. So we had written an entire skit for this lip sync to play this prank on the newly popular Michael Fay. And the lip sync that we chose to do that year was Peter Pan. And we were going to do it from the Disney cartoon, the song, Following the Leader. You know, the following the leader. So we dressed up like a bunch of lost boys, and we had all these props. And we choreographed this whole dance. And it was going to be amazing. And we just thought, you know, Michael Fay, you'd be perfect in this role. What we really need is someone to be windy in this play. And so we have this outfit for you with a wig and a dress. And uh, we would, we, we just, if you want to be in it, we need someone to play Wendy. Michael Fay's like, I'll do anything to be in this lip sync. We're like, cool. And we had decided, okay, we have a couple props, like if you've ever like, seen the cartoon or the, you know, Peter Pan. And you're going to be in, we, we built this huge box, and it was a tree stump. And there were three of our characters that got into a tree stump, and we were doing this whole choreographed dance and going around. And then at some point, Michael Fay was going to jump up. And the three people that were in the box were going to do this little dance in the box that was part of the, the choreographed dance. And then at the end, they would take off, you know, and we'd see, oh, it's windy. Ha, 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 fun. 
So we had told Mike to do that. We had practiced it and we had rehearsed it. At the same time, we decided we were going to completely leave the stage. So he was going to be all by himself dancing in the box, and he'd take the box off, and he'd be wearing a dress on stage, prank pulled, right? And we're like 16, 17-year-old boys. We think this is hilarious. And we had created these big posters that says, Michael's in the box. He doesn't know it, but we're leaving stage. So the night of the performance, there's like a 1,000 people. There's like tons of teenagers. And we go through this, this choreograph. We hold up the signs. We all leave stage. Mike pops out of the box, and he dances, and he nails it. I mean, it's just like a 10. Um, but everyone realizes what's happening, that he's all by himself. And you start to hear like this roar of laughter. And Mike's, Mike's in the box, and like, he, he's like realizing, like, what? this isn't supposed to be this funny. What's going on? At the end of the dance, ends up pulling the box off, and he's sitting there with this wig and this dress all by himself, and the whole place is roaring. And like we are like, we nailed it. This is so funny. And Mike just like looks around, realizes what happens, and like walks off the stage. Like no emotions or anything. <laughs> and uh, like, so he's he's telling like I'm I'm going back to like high school and remembering this moment, how much like we got in so much. I mean, this was like bad news. I was in this small Christian school. This was like terrible, terrible thing to do. Parents upset. Like it was like we couldn't, like, we were like, you know. This was hilarious, but it was so bad. And it, like, just completely, like, destroys his soul. Just, you know, terrible, terrible thing. And it had been this thing in our relationship. And so we get into this meeting. We're talking about shame. And it's interesting because, like, we haven't talked about this thing in, like, 15 years. And he brings it up. And he starts talking about shame. And he goes, let me tell you about a time where I felt, I felt shame. And he starts to tell this story in our meeting. And he starts talking about, like, the feeling of shame. Shame is feeling exposed, laughed at, isolated, and the object of ridicule. And I'm sitting there in the meeting like, man, like, uh, so I'm like, first of all, I can't believe that we're friends still. <laughs> like, second, I'm feeling the other thing, that conviction part of guilt right now. And heavy, heavy conviction and guilt. Um, and we're, like, processing, like, this, this prank that was pulled and talking about how that affected our relationship even 15 years later. And we're all cool. I mean, his wife spoke here last week. We're good friends. Um, <laughs> but having that going through an emotion like that. And what shame is, shame is the enemy's way of attacking our identity. And for Mike, if you can imagine what, like thinking that he's a part of this group of cool kids now, and then to have him do something like that, what that would do to his self-esteem to go through that, to feel this shame, this, this like identity crisis. All of these lies start pouring in about himself. Shame is the enemy's way of lying about our identity. And the way that shame plays out, shame is something that happens to us because someone else or shame is something that we're ashamed that we've done something to someone else. And in the story, Michael and I feel shame for different reasons. These stories that we don't like to bring up and talk about, and they're kind of fun to laugh about, but they're also like something deep inside us gets wounded. Shame. Brene Brown um, writes about shame. She says, shame is an unspoken epidemic in our culture. 
an unspoken epidemic, the secret behind many forms of broken behavior. Shame is this secret behind many forms of broken behavior. She goes on to say, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something that was done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human or you were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human and there were witnesses. We talk about this idea of shame. It's a powerful language. It's this deep sense that you are unacceptable. And it's something that all of us deal with. Brene Brown goes on to talk about, she does all this research on, on people and what she finds is like there, there is one, like everyone deals with shame. And the only person that doesn't deal with shame, uh, she found this profile of this person, that person can't experience empathy. She said this, the person that can't feel shame is a sociopath. So you think of like, if you watch Dexter, right? Dexter's a serial killer. He can't feel shame. And she's like, if it was like a sociopath or shame, she's like, I'd rather be one that experiences shame. But shame is something that we all experience. It's this common emotion. It manifests itself in different ways. It's caused by different things, whether things that we've done or things that have been done to us. But shame is this deep sense that we are unacceptable. And where does shame come from? Where does shame come from? Uh, this is kind of like good news and bad news. Within scripture, shame has been around since the first human being on earth. Shame has been a part of the human story from the time of the Garden of Eden. And the only time we don't see shame, it's interesting, is when God creates humans in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden and you have Adam and Eve. In chapter 2, I think it's verse 25, it says, Adam and Eve are naked and they feel no shame. And I feel like that's such a powerful verse that we just look over all the time. Adam and Eve, when God created them, when they're human, they're whole, and they're, they're in, in this state of shalom and peace, and they're at peace with themselves, and they're at peace with God, and they're, and they're naked, and they feel no shame. And then we know how the story goes, right? If you've grown up in the church, or you've watched VeggieTales, most people know the story of Adam and Eve. They're placed in the garden, and they're told not to eat from one certain tree. And the evil one, manifested as the serpent, comes and deceives Eve. And he says, God's holding out on you. God wants you to have this fruit. And he's lying to you. But if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. You're going to have this knowledge of good and evil. You're going to have, it's going to, to God is, has, is holding out on what? Something better can be for you. And Eve, what we know is like she takes the fruit. Adam comes, he takes the fruit. And their eyes are opened. And immediately they realize that they're naked. This ancient story is so profound where the first time in their life they realize they're ashamed of something. And as the story plays out, we find God, God kind of, and we know that God knows everything, but as he sees what happens to them, it says that he pursues them and he's looking for them in the garden and they're hiding. They're hiding. The story continues. They're, they're silent. They don't come out to God and say, we eat the fruit. 
And I think there's something here that, that we learn about shame. Is that shame grows exponentially in silence. For Adam and Eve, as soon as they do it, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to tell God about it because they're ashamed of it. And in this silence, the shame grows. And that's interesting because a lot of times we think if we can like suppress something, if we can just sweep it under the rug or try to shrink it, it will go away. But shame has this opposite effect. It's like the more we try to hide it and shrink it and be silent about it, the more that it expands in our soul. Shame grows exponentially in their silence. Shame grows exponentially in Adam and Eve's secret. They try to cover up the thing that they're ashamed of. It says they use like, like fig leaves. They try to cover their nakedness. And this is the difference between, I think, conviction and shame. Conviction says, I have done something wrong. But shame says, I am wrong. This is this lie that they're, they're made in the image of God. They're, they're, they're in relationship with God. And they're now hiding and covering up who God created them to be. They experience shame. And shame grows in silence and secrecy. And then we know also what happens is when God finally connects with Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? And Adam appears and he says, here's what happened. The first thing Adam does is he blames Eve. He says, this woman that you created, she's the one that got me to eat this fruit. And what happens with shame is that shame grows exponentially when we project it. We project it onto other people. At no point does Adam just take responsibility for the actions. He becomes a victim. And he blames so shame, it grows in silence, it grows in secrecy as we try to cover it up, and it grows as we start to project it on to other people. And this is where I'd say this idea of conviction. Conviction is, this posit is something positive. It's a response of psychology, uh, psychologically healthy individuals who realize that they've done something wrong. It helps them act more positively, more responsibly, and often to correct what they've done. But shame is not productive. Shame tends to direct individuals into destructive behaviors. And when we focus on what we did wrong, we can correct it. But when we're convinced that we are wrong as people and as a result of our shame, our whole sense of self is eroded. This is why conviction doesn't produce anger or rage or rational behavior as shame does. Many violent behaviors lead back to this deep well of shame. Shame is an unhealthy way to process the things that we've done or the things that have been done to us. I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, I'm really excited because the Diamondbacks are good this year. It's been a while since they've been good. Um, but one thing that was really uh, surprising that caught my attention is a couple years back, there was this knuckleballer named R.A. Dickey. Some of you know R.A. Dickey. Won a Cy Young back in 2012. This professional athlete, Cy Young winner, uh, signed a huge contract, multi-million dollar contract. Uh, R.A. Dickey came out a couple of years ago with something that he was ashamed of. And he, he, he tells this story of uh, early on in his childhood, childhood he'd experienced abuse. He'd experienced uh, sexual abuse. 
And as a professional athlete, as this, uh, you know, this alpha male man, this is something that you just don't talk about. So he has suppressed it for years. And it had created inside of him this shame. And he, and he, he talks about it. This is why I, I share this. Because he eventually starts to talk about this to help. And he talks about, he gets to this moment where, like, his whole life is, like, everything he does is successful and good. And everything, everyone thinks he's just awesome. And he has this thing that he's been hiding. And he gets to this point where the shame is corroding his soul so much to the point that he just wants to die. And he decides that, that he's going to take his own life. And he tells this story about how he goes out to the Atlantic Ocean and he swims. And he's just swimming out there and he's just, he's just going to like let himself drown. And when he's out there and he realizes he's faced with this moment of death, he starts to panic. Out of nowhere, this boat shows up, saves him. It's this insane story. Saves him, he feels like, for whatever reason, like this boat came at the right time, and maybe he's not supposed to die. So he gets on the boat, comes back and says, I gotta get help. I gotta figure this out. Whatever it is, whatever, like this is something that's so, I'm so ashamed of, and it's so embarrassing in my life, but I gotta get help for it. And he starts to get help. And he starts to uh, not only deal with the shame that is deep inside of him that's corroding his soul, but he starts to, to figure out how to be released of it and to heal. And now his story is, is so helpful for others. He, he went on to NPR, was interviewed, and he said this about it. R.A. Dickey said on NPR, he said, uh, it had been locked away for 23 years and had wreaked havoc in my life in the relationships I had in my life, not only with my friends who weren't really even my friends. I didn't trust anybody. Said so my wife didn't know the darkest things about me. I had uh, kind, of, kind of conned her into marrying me. He said, it's a tough admission. I loved her dearly, so I projected who I wanted to be, but I would never let her inside because I always feared if someone knew the real me, they would run the other way. It's an unbelievable story of how he deals with and processes his shame. And it wasn't until he was able to finally let that shame out, when he was stopping the silence and the secrecy and the covering it up and the projecting, that he could start to heal. One thing that I've found about our shame is that in our life, the ways that we've been sinned against always affect how we sin. The ways that we've been hurt by other people always affect how we, in turn, treat others. The ways that we've been broken manifest themselves in so many different ways. And when it comes to these things that we're ashamed of, our thought is that we want to suppress them. But they keep coming back and they keep growing inside of our soul in a way that it has to get out. And it gets out in all sorts of different ways. It looks different for different people. Sometimes it's an outward expression. Sometimes it's an inward. But it's never healthy. And the story of God's love for us, all the way back to Adam and Eve, is that he says, come to me with your shame. In fact, he pursues Adam and Eve in the midst of their shame. So what do we do about our shame? We have an encounter with God. We have this encounter with God. And God, for Adam and Eve, he pursues them 
He follows them into this story. And then here's what happens at the end of the story. There's, there's consequences for their decision. But it says in chapter 3 that he actually makes them close. The, the first time clothes are made, right? The ultimate, like, stylus. God makes Adam and Eve close. And he covers their shame. The first thing he does is he, God acts and he intervenes in this story. And he covers their shame. And then in Exodus, there's a story that we've been talking about this, uh, this series. 400 years, God's people are in slavery. They cry out. God comes, he delivers them. We have this Passover story. We have the exodus out of Egypt. We have them crossing the Red Sea, being delivered from the Egyptians who enslaved them. And we talked about how that's this huge part of our story, that God sets us free from things that enslave us. But as God's people get to the promised land, in the book of Joshua, there's a statement where God has this interaction with his people. And as they're getting ready to move into the promised land, years and years after they've been set free of this thing that they or enslaved to. God speaks to them. In Joshua 5, 9, before they go in the promised land, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. And so that place will be called Gilgal. And it's called that to this day. God says, I've rolled away the shame of your time that you were in Egypt. And I think what's so interesting about this story is In the first story, God covers their shame, but in this story, God pulls something back from them. He he rolls away something that is shameful. And the thing that's interesting is they've been delivered from the Egyptians. They go out to the wilderness. They're there for like 40 years. This is a long time after they were slaves in Egypt. And yet the shame of their identity follows them this whole time. And finally, God says, I'm rolling away your shame. Because just because we've been set free of something doesn't mean that that shame has left us. God sets them free. He rolls the shame away. And then finally, we end with this, the cross. When we consider the implications of the cross, Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This idea of the cross, we take our shame to the cross. And we talk about the implications of the cross the last few weeks. We talk about the cross is this thing that we, we understand that on, on the cross, God came down as a human on the cross, takes uh, the, the weight and the consequences of sin, absorbs it on the cross, dies, conquers death and sin, is resurrected. Personally, that has huge implications for us. But last week when we were talking about anger, two weeks ago, we talked about how the cross isn't just for our, the punishment of our sin, but all of the things that other people have done to us. We come to the cross and we trust that God absorbs that as well. The things that make us angry, we can release that. But here it talks about the cross also absorbing shame. Jesus didn't come to shame us out of our sins. He came to take the shame of our sin away that we no longer stand condemned. And when we consider all of the implications of the cross, we realize that Jesus takes our shame, the things that are deep inside of us, the things that remind us that we're unacceptable, that we hide, that we are secret about. We trust that Jesus absorbs that on the cross. So God covers our shame. He rolls it away. He absorbs it. 
Today, I don't know what you have going on inside of your soul. But the truth is we probably all carry shame for different things. Maybe it's something that has been done to us that we're completely ashamed of. Maybe it's something that we've done to other people. Whatever it is, our hope is that we would deal with it in a way that God would cover, roll away, absorb. And if shame grows through silence and secrecy and projection, there's this old Christian practice called confession, where we confess what that darkness is inside of us. And what we don't find, when we think if we let this out and we confess it, there's judgment. But what we find is freedom. And today, you might be carrying things that are heavy inside of your soul that you need to trust that God covers and rolls away and absorbs. But it comes from this idea of taking it to God and saying, I give this to you. I trust that you deal with it. But today as we close, the band's going to come back up. We're going to spend some time reflecting. And we close each sermon with this time of communion. And we take communion because it represents this act where God absorbs our shame on the cross. We take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. We take a cup of juice that represents his blood that was poured out, that was shed, that wipes us clean. And maybe today you need to return to this table with your shame. And you need to start the process of being released and healed. Today as we come to this communion table, one of the things that we, we want to do, every, we do this every now and then, is maybe you just need someone to pray with you. You just need to let it out. Um, we're going to have some people that are willing to pray um, over behind this panel on this side and this side. Maybe you would like to just release the things that are inside. Maybe you just need God to cover this up in his divine way or roll things back that release you from it. And we invite you to come and pray. And then when you're ready, move to communion. Maybe just between you and God, you need to just say, there's things inside of me that just don't feel unacceptable. And those need to be getting out of here. They need to be placed in the open. And that we would spend time praying and reflecting. This prayer that was in Lamentations that starts with this shameful lament ends with this. And this is my prayer for us today. Lamentations 3, 19 through 26 says, I remember my affliction in my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Our prayer today is that you would not be consumed. That you would connect with God today. That you would find freedom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for this community of people 
the church. A community of grace, of hope, of love, of peace. And today in this community, Lord, we, we just want to bring the darkness that's in our hearts to you. And say, deal with it. Lord, that you would cover up certain things in your divine way. That we may find security in our identity with you. Lord, that you would roll back years of memories of slavery. Lord, that you would absorb our shame. Lord, that you would stir our hearts to get help, to get healing peace. Lord, we give you this time. We ask you to work in us, to transform us, to heal us. In your son's name we pray.